This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi. Boy, Netflix sure is in the news this week, isn't it? For you, the concern might be, well, they're going to crack down on password sharing, meaning you might have to start paying for Netflix instead of sharing it with somebody else. Or the fact that there might have a cheaper kind of ad-supported version so you could see commercials on your Netflix now, provided you get a cheaper version of it. So there's all sorts of things that are in the mix. Why is this happening? Well, it's because it doesn't have as many subscribers as they thought they were going to. Plus, their shares lost more than a third of their value on Wednesday. This was yesterday, coming after they reported the first subscriber loss in more than 10 years. And they said it's not going to get prettier as they're moving forward. So we thought, let's break this all down now. Neil Macker joins us now, an analyst with Morningstar. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Cindy. So you've been tracking companies like Netflix in the past. Is I always thought that there was something that must go up, 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 has to eventually come down. Was this inevitable? Um, from our point of view, it was. We we viewed Netflix shares as been overpriced for quite a while now, and uh, they, you know they hit the subscriber growth wall as you just described here, and then you know around the world in the United States, Canada, and India, Europe, there's just more and more competition from players like not only Amazon but Disney. Um, we're seeing obviously HBO Max go around the world. Discovery is now joined up with them, uh, Paramount as well. So there's just more and more options for subscribers out there. So what do you think is going to happen with the Netflix stock? Like, what do you predict? Well, so, you know, I think, you know, right now, I think it's going to take a while for the stock to bounce back here. Um, You know, our fair value is at 280, which provides a decent amount of upside from where we are now. But we just think there are better options within the media space, whether it's Disney or Paramount Plus. But we don't see any near-term catalysts for the stock, uh, particularly, as you said, the next quarter, they're expecting to lose 2 million more subs. Um, So I do think it'll be a while before the stock bounces back. So what happened here then, Neil? When you look at this track record, this company, which was so revolutionary, right? It was amazing when it first launched. It, It was stratospheric. What happened? Well, I think a couple things happened. Um, number one, one of the reasons for the loss was that they did pull out of Russia. But even with pull, taking those numbers and putting them back in, you still saw uh, it only been a net game of 500,000 subs versus you know guidance of 2.5 million. So I think there are a couple things. Number one, in the U.S. and Canada, it's pretty saturated. Like you know, it's been around for well over a decade streaming now at this way. So if you want Netflix, you've probably already gotten it. Number two, you know, the company did blame password sharing in places like the U.S. and Canada and other places like that. And so to some extent, if you don't have Netflix, you may have a password for somebody else. So why pay 15 to $20 a month for it anyway? And then outside the U.S., um, if we look at markets like India, Netflix is just considerably more expensive than Disney Plus or Amazon while offering smaller amount of services for that price. And that makes it a hard sell in some of the um, markets where you expected long-term growth for the company. Right. And also Netflix now has to spend a lot lot more money on original content. Is that cutting into potential profit too? Yeah, that's definitely hurting margins, especially overseas. Um, 
you know, one of the things that, you know, you hear about Netflix is the billions they spend. The, the, the key point is, though, Disney's also spending those billions. And now you have newer players like Amazon and Apple spending billions as well for content. And then looking at some of these more traditional players like Disney or Warner Brothers with HBO, they've been spending billions for decades as well. So Netflix has really been trying to catch up in the last, let's call it five to ten years with their original content. But it's hard to make up that ground on people who are continuing to spend at the same level you are. So do companies like that, do they see that coming, Neil? Because the way you described it, they should have seen it coming. Do they plan for this eventuality? I think, you know, one of the reasons they've been spending money is that they've been seeing the fact that, you know, not only is, are people coming for them in terms of Disney and things like that, but those people were going to pull off their content. You know, one of the reasons Netflix became very popular in streaming is they had access to Disney content for a number of years. They had access to shows like Friends and The Office from other players who are now pulling that content back. And so now if you're looking at a lot of the content on Netflix, they are still getting shows like NCIS from Paramount, but a lot of the, the stuff that, that they're trying to push on you is original content. And, you know, that's one of the reasons they went that way. And then in terms of subscriber growth, I don't think they saw a slowdown coming. I don't think they expected the hit they did today, which is why you're seeing some of these sort of pivots by management where they're looking at things like password sharing, something that they've sort of, you know, turned a blind eye to for a number of years. And then also advertising, which is something they've, you know, been pretty adamant against adding into the Netflix mix. Yeah, boy, that changed pretty quickly this week. Okay, so then, Neil, if you are like a long-term Netflix subscriber, what kind of changes do you think we can expect? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things. Number one, if you're in the U.S. and Canada, which is you know the most profitable management, I, I would expect continued price increases. Unfortunately, you know one of the things you've seen, if you go back to the original price of Netflix, it was eight dollars a month of streaming. You know the standard plan now is being moved up to fifteen forty nine in the states. It's the four K plan is moving twenty. I don't think that's the end of the price increases. I think they're going to continue to do that. Uh, number two, if you're sharing your plan with, let's say, your kids or you know with your friends. Um, I think down the road, they're going to start asking you for a little more money to do that. Maybe it's another dollar or two a month to allow you to to, to share the plan with people. Um, if you're sharing it with a bunch of people, you may have to start cutting off some of your friends there, um, you know, if you're sharing it with 10 or more people, let's say. That's a lot of people. And then the second piece, <laughs> yeah. And then the second part is, is simply that if you feel if you feel all right with advertising, you may be able to lower that price, um, and we'll see, you know, how long it takes. I do think in the U.S. and Canada, I think advertising tier is much later than it is in a market like India, where they're trying to lower the effective price of the product to gain share. Um, given the the amount that they're of um, excuse me, given the number of subscribers in the U.S. and Canada, I don't expect they're going to try to cannibalize that in the near term. So that lower price tier may not come for three, four years down the road. Right, but I still feel like that's a bit of a catch-22 because if they start doing some of these things, they're going to force their customers, like me, into a position where I have to decide, do I really need to keep this? And the answer might be no. Yeah. No, and I think that's something they're going to have to try to balance. And I think that's uh, not only just with price increases, but with things like doing that. And I think, you know, I talked about it at the top, um, competition is one of the keys here. And, and, you know, Disney is much cheaper uh, even now, HBO Max is cheaper than the, the prices for the standard and the 4K plan. And that's one of the balancing acts you have. And, you know, if you look at Netflix, that's one of the problems with the business model that we've always had is that they have one source of revenue, subscri uh, sorry, streaming, and that streaming has two levers, price and subscribers. And when subscriber grace 
slows down and you try to keep rising prices, you know, you hit that subscriber number as well. And they don't have a lot of partnerships. That's the other thing that gets me too. You sign up for Prime, you can get a lot of great Canadian channels like Chorus is all on Prime. So there's all sorts of great things you can get with other streaming services. But with Netflix, you just essentially get Netflix. Yeah. And so I do think you'll see, you know, in the U.S., you do have uh, partnerships with people like um, T-Mobile, where you can get it as part of your bill if you're willing to pay that. They may be forced to do more of that. I don't think they're going to try to bundle with other channels. They've always tried to stand on their own. But, you know, given what's happened, that is still up in the air as well for them. Oh, interesting. All right, Neil, thank you. Thank you. That's Neil Macker, analyst with Morningstar, talking about what's been happening with Netflix. Like, that's big changes. In fact, until Neil said it, the eight ninety nine Netflix price, I had forgotten that that is probably what I originally signed up with 10 years ago. And I think now I'm paying about $20.99 for, you know, the Netflix subscription that I have. And at some point you do, you have to make a decision which one is going to stay, which one is going to go. This is Mornings with Simi. What will transit and transportation around Metro Vancouver look like in 10 years? Well, TransLink has been laying out its 10-year vision. We've been talking a lot about that this morning. We're talking about things like extending the Millennium Line all the way to UBC. That's a priority. Building a gondola to Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, also on the list. But what's at the heart of all of this? Well, we're going to break down more of the details now with the help of our next guest. It's Jonathan Cote, Mayor of New Westminster and Chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. Thank you very much for being with us. No, thank you, and good morning. Good morning. What do you think is the most important part of this plan? Well, you know, I, I think the important part of the plan is it, it lays out a, a bold vision for, for us to get back on track to to uh, to really shaping a, a transit-oriented city here in, here in Metro Vancouver. Uh, we've lost a little bit of momentum over the last couple of years, but... Uh, you know, the Mayor's Council have demonstrated they want to be committed to, to recognizing we have some growing challenges in our regions and, and we don't want to, you know, take our foot off the gas in terms of the, the, the momentum of, of, of really improving transit across the region. Okay, what are the biggest priorities? Well, there's there's a number of priorities, and uh, and you mentioned a few in, uh, in in your introduction, and those aren't those aren't necessarily new priorities, but the first time that they are, are finding themselves in in a ten year plan. So this would be the the SkyTrain extension to to UBC, the, the Burnaby Gondola. Having said that, I, I, through the the development of this plan and, and Transport 2050, there was a recognition that there's actually important transit corridors across uh, across our region that that also need uh, need support and i think one of the big elements of the plan is is actually meaning we we need to move faster and and by doing so we're we're suggesting actually moving to to bus rapid transit as a way to to really extend rapid transit a lot more quickly in our region and i think that's that's kind of one of the the interesting new elements that i, I think is a big move here is it a way of enticing people back into the transit system yeah, you know, I think we've we've obviously uh, had some challenges uh, with with the pandemic with ridership, but but life is is coming back to our, our transit system. Uh, we passed seventy uh, percent pre COVID numbers uh, recently, so uh, we are seeing the energy come come back. But we know as as our population grows grows as a region, as as employment uh, grows in, in in Metro Vancouver over over the coming decades, uh, we need to make sure that we're providing good transit options, or the default option will 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 be the single occupancy vehicle. And that's not going to be good for the environment. That's not going to be congestion. It's good for congestion. And 
And ultimately, that's not going to be good for the environment in, in Metro Vancouver. So uh, we know now is the time to be to setting up the plans and, and really laying the groundwork for, uh, you know, what should be some significant investments in, in the coming decade. Yeah, but how do we pay for those significant investments? Where is the money going to come from? Yeah, well, and, you know, that's always the, the, the challenging discussion. And I, I wish I was here with the, uh, you know, the, the complete answer on, on that. But, uh, you know, I think what, what we've said is we've let, you know, put the bold plan out as to what needs to happen in our region. Uh, all three levels of government are, are kind of aware and are aligned with the goals that we're, we're trying to achieve. Um, but we do know an important next step is uh, is, is talking about funding. In 2014, the, the Mayor's Council put out an ambitious mayor's 10-year plan, and at that time, it, it wasn't clear exactly how it was all going to be funded, but over that decade and through many different phases and, and partnership, we worked ways to, to find funding, and, and the vast majority of, of the previous mayor's 10 years plan has been accomplished or is under construction under construction right now. So we are going to have to look at uh, new, new ways to, to fund transportation because the reality is property taxes or just looking for, for straight grants from upper levels of government aren't necessarily going to get us there. We're going to have to look at, at new partnerships, whether that's things like looking at, at our partnership with the developers or, you know, we've got a couple of lines going to universities. Uh, are there ways to partners with, the, with those organizations to, to find kind of new ways to help fund, fund transportation and transit expansion? Okay, but is mobility pricing on that list, road pricing? You know what? Uh, you know, I think we do need to find find new options, and and I think we don't want to take anything off the table, including uh, including mobility pricing or, or finding ways to 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 uh, uh, you know to have 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 drivers be able to pay their share to the transportation system. Uh, we gas tax has always been kind of that reliable source in the future, but that revenue is actually going down for for TransLink uh, uh, there, and uh, you know as we move to electric vehicles, that's that's a positive for for our transportation system but it actually ends up putting a bit of hole in, in the funding system for our transportation. So whether it's mobility pricing or another mechanism that uh, that taps into that, I, I think we're going to have to look at new areas because the traditional ways of, of funding our, our transportation system are going to have to evolve, but we're not going to be able to, to provide the transit system that I think our region needs. Right, but if this is a 10-year plan then, Mayor Cote, like, it sounds to me like we have to have those discussions about funding pretty soon. Nope, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the, the provincial government has, has definitely indicated that they're, they're prepared to sit down over the next uh, couple of years with, with all local governments, but, but also with a focus on, on how do you fund transportation, uh, recognizing that issue. So it's a, it's a very live issue to, to the mayors around the region. It's a live issue to, uh, to the provincial government that this is something that uh, we're going to have to work on and, and work on right, right away. So I don't have the solutions for, for, for today, but the reality is over the next couple of years, we're going to have to do a lot of work to, uh, to, to start putting, uh, uh, putting these pieces, pieces together. Having said that, it's, it's a 10-year plan that's not all going to be uh, you know, fully funded at once. So the last mayor's 10-year plan actually included three different phases with uh, you know, three different opportunities to, to find funding. So um, you know, I think we, we have to make these, put these into manageable bites, but the reality is, as, as you said, we need to get to work right away. What is the price of that 10-year plan? So we don't have specific costing on, on all of the plans, but, uh, you know, kind of to put it into a bit of uh, a reference, the, the last mayor's 10-year plan was, was about a $10 billion plan for the region. And this plan is uh, is, is even more ambitious than that. It's, it's about double in terms of uh, the, the types of commitments there. So we don't have an exact figure, but just to give a scale, we want to be upfront that, no, this is... This is a bold plan, and uh, and it is going to require significant uh, significant investments to to really help improve transportation options across the region. I'll say though, when you say bold, it makes me think expensive. 
Yeah, you know, and, and we want to be up, up front with that. But, uh, you know, I think uh, by providing affordable transportation options to the regions, uh, you know, uh, public transit can actually save Metro Vancouver residents uh, uh, as well, too. If, uh, if you don't have to live in a community where you need two cars, you need to be driving a lot and putting a lot of gas in, in, in your tank, but you actually have options to, to you know, either drive less or maybe go down from two cars to one cars. That could be a huge saving for, for, for residents, but the reality is if the transit, good transit options aren't, aren't out there, then people aren't able to make those choices. So although there is, is a cost in, in investing in, in a system like this, there actually is a payback to residents as well. All right. Well, I'm sure we're going to be talking more about this. Thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. That's Jonathan Cote, Mayor of New Westminster, Chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council, talking about their 10-year plan. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of discussion about that. Are you open to some of those ideas, changing how we fund it? Let's get rid of the gas tax. Let's switch over to mobility pricing. Is that something that you would support? You can weigh in. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Waiting for surgery, any kind of surgery, is no fun. And the wait has gotten worse and more painful for so many Canadians during the pandemic when so-called non-urgent surgeries were cancelled for thousands of people across the country. So what are those patients doing to cope? Well, we're going to learn more about that now. Jamie Marocker joins us now, Global News Network reporter who's written about this actually at globalnews.ca. Jamie, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So what are people doing to get these surgeries? Yeah, so it's really interesting. There's this concept called medical tourism. So people are actually leaving Canada and seeking out their procedures, paying big bucks for those procedures in other countries. Um, The story that's airing today on all of our platforms actually features two women who needed hip replacements, and they went all the way to Lithuania. I know we hear a lot about people going to Mexico or going to the U.S., um, but funny enough, according to the Medical Tourism Association, Canada is actually ranked number one for surgical destination in the world. Um, But when they're doing that ranking, they're specifically talking about private clinics. And that costs a lot of money. So um, those Lithuanian surgeries that I was talking about, including flights, uh, rehabilitation, and the surgery, on average, the women paid about $15,000 for a hip replacement. That same procedure here in Canada can run upwards of $30,000. So, you know, we have the talent here. We have the capability to do these surgeries in private clinics. But if you're waiting on the universal health care system, which a lot of Canadians are, you know, are so proud of, you're sometimes waiting months. And, in fact, one of the women who went and got her surgeries in another country, she's still on a wait list in Canada. It's been three years. So the wait times have increased exponentially, um, especially because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But this problem isn't new. It was here before. Right. But do we know, like, did it get worse in which province? Like, is, is there a province that where people are more inclined to go overseas to get surgeries? A lot of the provinces have seen um, the issue rise, particularly in Ontario. I think they have about a backlog of 250,000 surgeries, according to the government, on average. Um, you're speaking to me from BC, correct? Yes, 
Yes. Okay. So BC is actually doing a little bit better. I think their rates um, are about 6.3% smaller than the 2019-2020 wait list. But that doesn't mean it's it's not still an issue. It is still an issue there. And actually, BC was the only province in the entire country to offer me a semblance of an idea um, of how they kind of plan to deal with the backlog and how they have been dealing with the backlog. Uh, I know a lot of people know that the federal government gave about $2 billion, a lump sum payment to provinces, not not $2 billion to each province, but $2 billion total uh, to deal with the surgical backlogs. Provinces are saying that's nice, that's well and good, but it's not enough money. Um, and a lot of the provinces I spoke with, shockingly, don't even have a plan to get us out of this situation. So I'm going to touch on tomorrow um, in my series uh, the the, the what the frontline workers are saying, how do we get out of this problem? Because if we don't, it's going to be catastrophic. And what are the most popular procedures, Jamie? Do we know about what what are people going away to get done? So there's a variety of procedures. There's cataract surgery. There, um, you know, a lot of leg surgeries, hip surgeries. Uh, We're actually even seeing cancer treatments um, because those have been delayed. And I spoke to an ER doctor Um, in Toronto, and she told me, this was devastating, she told me that she's caught more advanced cancer in the ER than she ever has in her entire career, and this is impacting patients' life expectancy. So this is becoming a life-or-death situation now. All right, well, I look forward to hearing more about it. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Jamie. Thank you for having me. That's Jamie Marocker, Global News Network reporter. Her series is all about the surgery waitlist and what people are doing to cope with that. Now, check it out at globalnews.ca. But getting lots of reaction from you on this. I thought her comments about BC were really interesting there, that the one province that they received a lot of information from and the one province that has a plan for dealing with the surgery backlog is British Columbia. None of the other provinces that they tried to get information from have a plan to deal with it. So that's the plus side. The downside of it is that doesn't take away the pain, though, for people who are still waiting. Like if you need a knee replacement and I've got a family member who is waiting for one, it is pain every day. And I just can't even imagine how people cope with that. This is Mornings with Simi. Salmon stocks are fragile in the Strait of Georgia. Lots of concerns about over-harvesting over the years. But another significant reason for the decline in Pacific salmon stocks is the human-made barriers that sometimes prevent the fish from traveling to their natural spawning ground. And some people are coming up with unique ways to deal with this. Our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more. Good morning. Hi, Simi. Yeah, so we know salmon stocks have been in trouble for a while now. Uh, Things like logging practices, uh, over-harvesting, fishing too much. Uh, Human habitation also has had an impact. And streams and waterways where salmon used to spend their early life uh, have been disrupted to the point that uh, they're just not coming back there. And I talked to Ken Gray. He runs this uh, amazing initiative with the Mill Bay Conservation Society, which is about 50 kilometers north of Victoria. And for years now, um, actually since 1978, people in the area have tried to assist with the salmon run through this conservation group. And they've been addressing the problem using an incredible human-made salmon run. And it just sounds amazing. This is the kind of assignment I wish I had the time to get out to and do in person because I'd love to see this. I've watched video now of this contraption that they've made. It carries 
thousands of spawning salmon from fish trap into the Salish Sea, up a hillside. It goes above waterfalls and across the Trans-Canada Highway before it releases the fish into the Shawinigan Creek. And that help uh, brings a record amount of fish. Um, and last year, they, they made a new record. This year, they expect to top that record. It means that millions of eggs will be hatched by these fish that otherwise would not be. Here's Ken Gray. When these fish come back to spawn, uh, arrive at the base of the falls uh, and can't access, uh, they try and access above the falls to run the, run the falls, but they're just not able to. The, uh, the degree of, of uh, difficulty of the, the way that the water comes into the ocean is way too great for them to access um, very far. So there was a trap that was uh, built uh, that we utilize today. So there's an artificial fishway that leads into the trap. And these fish come back and utilize the fishway and then propel themselves up the fishway into the trap through a set of fingers. And then once they're inside the trap, they're contained. And then once they're can, uh, enough of them are contained, I usually call a move day. Uh, I sent out a, an email to all my volunteers to arrive on the scene and transport these fish out of the creek bed via a rail system that was designed a number of years ago and a railway car. So these fish are uh, put in this railway car, usually about uh, 12 to 14 fish at a time, and then transferred up this railway track system that we have in place. Uh, we have two live tanks on trailers uh, waiting up above, and then they're put into the live tanks and then we're, they're transferred to usually about 40 to 50 fish uh, at a time in the live tanks up above the falls and re-released back into the creek to spawn naturally. So amazing. And Simi, very labor intensive. Like uh, Ken said, many, many thousands of hours are volunteered by loads of people who live in the area. Very hands-on work. Folks are out there in waders. Uh, they're picking up those squirming fish with their hands and then, you know, tenderly moving them into this uh, transportation contraption. And I asked Ken Gray, who's, uh, you know, he didn't come up in the fishing industry in any way. He's a retired dairy farmer, actually, from Alberta. Um, I asked him, like, what drives you to to dedicate all your time to volunteer to save the salmon? And he said that what it is, is because he can see that this conservation society is actually making a dent, they're making a real difference to the salmon stock that he stays committed to it. He said that um, if it weren't for them, that the salmon stock in Shawnigan Creek would actually be gone within three years. So that's why he does it. And he said when he was looking to donate his time and energy to a good cause, that it was salmon enhancement that grabbed his heart and soul. Nothing really grabbed me like this until I came across this project. And uh, that was 16 years ago. And uh, the rest is history. And I've certainly thrown my heart and soul into this project. And it's paid off with dividends. And to the number of volunteers that have seen the effort, I'm not trying to blow my own horn, but uh, to see the effort I put into it. And they also now have put, there's a great number of volunteers that put a substantial amount of effort into it. And that's made this uh, project so successful. 
I absolutely love this story. And I share your enthusiasm for wanting to go and see it in person, Rachi, because just the idea that people are carrying this, you know, helping salmon to get to those spawning grounds, I think it's phenomenal. How do they do this? How do they fund this? Okay, so they're 100% volunteer-led. Nobody's getting paid to work as part of this project. Uh, They get a tiny amount of funding from DFO. Uh, They uh, don't really pound the pavement for funds uh, to keep this rail track system going, but uh, groups, various groups do donate to them just voluntarily. They come and approach them and say, hey, we believe in this project, and so they give them funds. Um, But the conservation program also is involved with local schools so that kids get to learn about salmon stock enhancement. And my kindergartner here in North Vancouver, um, her class just released salmon into a stream. And it is incredible what she got to learn about fish and what she got to learn about conservation. And she was teaching me things I didn't know. And now she has this totally new appreciation for the process um, and for the cycle of, of mother nature. And so um, I'm also really just grateful for these conservation groups to get involved with curriculum in that way too. Very neat. It is very neat. And I love the fact that they are doing this more and more. And I feel like pe- the more people hear about it, it feels like such a worthwhile thing to do. Absolutely. You know, I also had to, I had to ask Ken if he's a vegetarian coming out of all of this volunteer work he does with the salmon. Oh, like good question. Yeah. Salmon himself. And he said after he works with salmon all day, every day, uh, he, he barely eats any, but he does, uh, he'll can a little bit just for his close family and friends, but he's not really consuming much. I was curious to know. That's good. That's a good question. Cause you think after all that you go through to help them make it, do you still eat salmon? Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Totally. Raji, thank you. That's our Raji Sohal there talking about saving salmon, a handful of them at a time. This is Mornings with Simi. They have made a practice out of very publicly blocking traffic to protest logging of old growth trees. In fact, the group Save Old Growth says they have done it 15 times this month alone. And once again, protesters were blocking traffic on the Iron Workers Memorial this morning. But this time it didn't last long for a couple of reasons. One, police showed up very quickly. And also, according to the group, angry commuters got involved, dragging some of the protesters off. So let's talk more about this. Joining us is Zane Hack, the organizer of the Save Old Growth campaign. Good morning, Zane. Hi, hi, Simi. What happened this morning? Well, a few nonviolent members of Save Old Growth got on the road to demand an end to old growth logging, to nonviolently block traffic and cause disruption to the economy. And they were dragged off by angry drivers. And when they were dragged off, and uh, they re- just very calmly and nonviolently got back on. And one person was arrested in that process. And everyone, with, everyone did that with a smile on their face because Sir David King has said, we have two to three years left to save humanity. Zane, I mean, you can't be surprised by this, right? Because obviously commuters, they are tense about this. It stresses them out. And at one point, like that was going to boil over. Did you have a plan for dealing with this? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? So this is the story throughout civil resistance history, is when in the 1960s, people who were demanding the desegregation of interstate buses would get on buses, they would get caught, they would get beaten up, they would be thrown in prison. Uh, and again and again and again, people would get hospitalized, then they would be thrown in prison. And we know that that's the deal throughout history, and that's what we're in for. And we're fine with that because harm is coming down the road anyway. 
So people are putting themselves in harm's way to demand an end to old growth logging that the government passed legislation, which is in the spirit of their own promises. So it's not a big ask and people are getting beaten up for it and thrown in prison. But Zane, aren't you, something bad is going to happen here if this is the way this is going. And is there not some responsibility if you're just going to continue doing this? Something bad will happen. We've got Sir David King, who's a former chief scientific advisor, has said we have two to three years left to save humanity. What that means is that the next 10, 15 years, we're facing mass starvation at a scale we've never seen before. So people do realize the risk, but they're willing to take that risk of being beaten up hospitalized, being thrown in prison because harm is coming down the road anyway. And people have to take that risk because, you know, yes, people do realize that there's risks involved. There are fathers, former firefighters, teachers getting on the road and students and risking arrest, risking violence from the public because that's what people have done throughout history when they've been faced with criminal governments. Zane, this is the 15th time this morning that this happened. Um, and is there any change? Like, are you actually, do you think you're making any progress here or are you just making people angry? Well, the point is throughout uh, the history of civil disobedience, the point is to engage the public in a democratic debate. So what we do is that we nonviolently disrupt traffic. We engage the public in the fact that in the debate that the literal human species is at the risk of extinction by the end of the century. So we're demanding an end to old growth logging, which is a very minor demand. And people want to engage the public in this debate so that we can talk about it. And in a superficial, it's only in a superficial democracy that we go to the ballot box once every few years. In a true democracy, we nonviolently disrupt one another but, to but, engage in a democratic process of talking about the annihilation of the human race, right, which is coming down the road. But Zane, do you actually think you're making progress? Are you I, getting I anybody you heard, to agree with you? I, I don't think you heard what I said. It's not about agreeing with people. Sir David King has said we have... Yes, we have I heard three, what you said about have, Sir David King. But, like, the police are showing up faster and faster now to pull people off the road when this starts happening. How are you making your point? We're making our point by filling up the prisons, which is what Gandhi said. That's what we're doing. We're demanding an end to old growth logging. If the government doesn't want to do that, that's fine. The police can arrest us. They can beat us up. We're willing to go to prison. That's perfectly fine. And that's the situation we're in right now, which is very tough. But harm is coming down the road anyway, and we're prepared to pay the price. So then what happens after today? Today was different when you saw commuters yeah. actually get out of their cars and, and yes. engage. So what, are you just going to keep doing this? Yes. And furthermore, there are two people who are on day, one person is on day 22 of their hunger strike, one person is on day 28. And tomorrow, Howard Breen, one of the people, will stop drinking fluids and will probably be hospitalized and may die as a result. So it's not just that we're blocking traffic and making people angry. Two people have not been eating for weeks, and one of those people will quite possibly, they may die on Friday, on Earth Day. And the government, their demand is for a public meeting with the Minister of Forests. So again, these are very minor demands. No one's been talking about the hunger strikers. People, people have only been talking about the people who are disrupting traffic. So when people say that this doesn't work, well, people have been engaging in a peaceful, non-disruptive action of a hunger strike, and they haven't been getting a lot of attention, and one person may die. So unfortunately, we have to do this. Okay, so let me ask you this. If you get a meeting with the Minister of Forests, do these protests stop? Well, uh, the demand for the hunger strikers is for a public meeting. The demand for the people who are going on the motorways is for the government to pass legislation to end all old growth logging in BC. So we'll be off the road immediately once the government passes legislation to end all old growth logging.
because we've only got 2.7% left and we can't afford to lose them. Zane, thank you for your time this morning. All right. Thank you, Sammy. Zane Hack is the organizer of the Save Old Growth campaign. So doesn't sound like anything is going to change there. If you are a commuter, it, and I'm, you know, today watching what happened, seeing the the people who are in traffic get involved. I mean, I think that's a scary turn of events there. And it just, it didn't look good. Police showing up faster and faster to these situations. That was the 15th such protest that group has done so far this month.